Oh, well, good morning, Shore. Morning, so good to be here. Uh, kids, so good to have you in the gathering. If you haven't yet, there are kids' activity sheets and sermon notes back there. Feel free to grab those. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 23. We are going to kick off our Easter sermon series titled Cries of the Cross, where we'll look at the seven things that Jesus said while hanging upon the cross. And in order to set things up for the first cry, I really need to throw us directly into the story. And I do mean the story of Jesus dying on the cross. So let's go, here we go. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rolls into the city of Jerusalem. He has a triumphal entry where everyone is so excited that he's there because they're expecting him to overthrow the government and take up the throne himself. After a few days, it becomes apparent that he hasn't come to do it this way and now all of the people begin to turn on him and plot how they can have him arrested and eventually kill him. So within a matter of days, people go from loving him and celebrating him to hating him with a passion. The night of his arrest, we, we read that he's in a garden called Gethsemane and Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows what he's about to endure on the cross and we read that he is so anxious to the point that he's sweating blood. He's so anxious because he knows what he has to endure in just a matter of hours. I wonder, have any of you ever been anxious about something? Anxious about a season you're in or something you're about to endure? Let me just say that Jesus Christ empathizes with you in that. Soldiers come to arrest Jesus and his close, what was friend, Judas, points him out by betraying him with a kiss. And if you get into the scriptures, you can see how much this hurts Jesus. Jesus says, Judas, you're really gonna do it like this? You're gonna betray me with a kiss? Like, I love you. I washed your feet. You saw me raise Tabitha from the dead. You've been with me this whole time. You're gonna betray me? You can see how it's painful for him. One of Jesus' other disciples, Peter, pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, Peter. No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. And Jesus picks up the guy's ear and puts it back on his head. You think they just let him go there. And so Jesus is taken. He's illegally persecuted in court. And the man who questions him, Pontius Pilate, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus had done nothing wrong and he simply wants to give Jesus a slap on the wrist to appease the crowds. But the mob, the mob of people don't relent. They're persistent. They're shouting for him to be beaten and killed in the most excruciating way on the cross. In fact, that word excruciating, the origin of it, it literally means pain from on the cross. And so Pilate has no choice but to grant their command and sentence Jesus to death. And from there comes what is the worst 15 to 18 hours you could ever possibly 
imagine. Jesus is led to be crucified on a road called the Via Dolorosa, which is the way of sorrows or the road of suffering. And when you think about this difficult time that Jesus went through, I, I don't want us to get caught up in thinking about just how brutally gross it is, though it is, or just how sad and devastating it is, though it is. But I want you to know that everything that Jesus went through, he gladly went through with joy because he loves you so much that he wants to take your sins away and offer you an eternity with him. And so Jesus is sentenced to death on the cross. He's led down this road where they just beat the mess out of him. Like, I won't get too graphic. They, they whip him. They, they rip the beard out of his face. They, they spit on him. They hit him. They hurl insults at him. And the whole time, Jesus does nothing. Finally, he gets to a place called the skull where they crucified people and nails were driven into his hands and his feet so he can be hung on a cross. Two criminals were hung with him, one on each side. This was intentional as Rome wanted to make the point that Jesus was a criminal among criminals, but they didn't even realize that they were fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, which says the Messiah will be killed among criminals. And the people continued to mock him by placing a crown of thorns on his head, saying, this is your king. And they fed him sour wine on a rag. Some commentators believe that this is essentially what they used to sterilize their toilets. And when you think about the picture of Jesus dying on the cross, like if you were to think of artwork or a painting, I think we tend to picture Jesus hanging on the cross, elevated some eight to 10, 15 feet in the air, but historically, a crucifixion was done at eye level. And so when nails are being driven in the hands and feet of Jesus, which is because of our sin, he's looking right at us. But the beautiful thing is, when we run to him in need of grace, he's there to meet us face to face. And as Jesus is hanging there, just in agony, there's a multitude of things that he could have said. I imagine if there were any of us, we would have maybe cried things of anger or malice towards these people, cries of injustice, maybe pleading or begging to be taken down, but what does Jesus say? The very first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <sighs> Jesus was showing on the cross how he prays for us all. Even if in this moment he was praying specifically for the people who crucified him, it still gives us hope for our forgiveness because here we see the heart and love of God. 
Jesus' words show his redemptive purpose in dying on the cross because if Jesus desired for the Father to forgive the very men who murdered him, then which of us is beyond his grace? And so surely anyone who repents will be saved. And when Jesus' enemies cried out, crucify him, Jesus cried out, forgive them. When we say, no, thank you, God, Jesus says, forgive them. Jesus is willing to forgive anyone, even people like us, no matter what we've done, as long as we accept him. And it's important to see that there's two active agents at play here. The first is Jesus extending forgiveness. The the people he was forgiving They were not forgiven by him saying this, right? But the offer was there for him. And the second active agent is that we need to receive that forgiveness. And so the question I'm gonna hammer on you all morning is will you accept his forgiveness? And and when I say forgiveness, so we're all on the same page, here's what I mean, I have a definition. This is on your kids' sermon notes there. We'll define forgiveness as releasing someone from their wrongs fully, freely, and forever. That's forgiveness. And so this morning, I want us to look at three things to get a a glance of what Jesus is talking about here. One, who forgives? The proper lens of the person who is forgiving us. Two, why we need forgiveness. And then three, how he forgives. So first thing, who forgives? Now, I myself run in a lot of secular, non-Christian communities and circles in my life. I love it. I feel so called to many of them. Um, Many of which the people involved have had little to no experience interacting with Christians, nor do they have a very good understanding of what Christians actually believe. And so I've sat in rooms many times where people have begun to talk about what they believe Christians do and what Christians believe and who God is and how we live our lives. And it's almost always based on what they've perceived through culture and media or hearsay or through a few bad experiences. And maybe you've experienced this too, but one of the popular ideas that many people believe about Christianity is that we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, believe that everybody else, everyone outside of here, are just a bunch of dirty, filthy sinners that God's out to get and he's going to judge and we have that same authority to judge them as well. Because we, we alone, have been enlightened to what's actually true and therefore we are begrudgingly or reluctantly, we're only following God so that he doesn't punish us. And therefore, we must be miserable because we can't do this or God won't let us have fun or God won't let us do this thing so we're a bunch of miserable people. But that just isn't true. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not out to get you, but he is gracious and loving and patient and kind. I want to show you this through a few verses here. John 3, 16 and 17. This is who forgives. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here we go. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, no, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so while the cultural narrative is that God is on the prowl and out to get us and out to judge us, that's just not true. The story of the Bible is not that God condemns, but that God saves. And that's by no work of our own. I'm prepared for this. I practice with my baby screaming. Second Peter. Second Peter 3, I love this verse. I love this verse so much because I have a lot of friends who don't know Jesus, who I desperately want to. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is what? Patient. Patient toward you. Not wishing that who? Any should perish, but that who? All should reach repentance. God is patient with you, with everyone. So you're in here this morning, you have doubts about Christianity, God is patient. You find it hard to believe that some of this is true, God is patient. You struggle to accept that God loves you, God is patient. You're not living the way you know you should right now. God is patient. He's not wishing that any would perish, but that all would repent and come to him. Or Psalm 145, we just sung this. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I love that, abounding. He doesn't just have a little bit of love. He's overflowing with love that he's pouring upon you. Or how about this one, one more. If you ever doubted if God could love you, look what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So if you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, this guy hated Jesus and Christians with a passion. He would hunt them down and have them killed. And look what God says to him. Verse 16, he says, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, if God can be patient and forgive and love someone like me, then no one could ever say, not me. Because I don't, I don't know what you're coming in here with, but I'm guessing it's not as dark as Paul. And so that's the heart of the one who forgives. Did you see the words there? Gracious, patient, slow to anger, abounding in love. But that leads us to our second point, which is why we need 
forgiveness. And I could have gone a lot of places for this, but to help us with this, we'll look at Romans 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what Paul is describing here is the fall of Adam in the garden in Genesis 2. When, he was, when God said that he was forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if he did so, he would die and sin would enter the world. And then one chapter later, Adam ate off the tree, and so death came and spread to all men and all women. And so Paul says, when that happened, sin entered and all of us sinned. That phrase, all sinned, is of utmost importance because the crucifixion of Jesus is built off of those words. The phrase of utmost importance is actually in, sorry, the phrase all sinned is important because it's in the aorist tense in the Greek, the aorist tense, and that signifies a completed action in the past. And so I want to set the stage here. When I say sin, I want to define it together as well. When I say sin, we'll define it as simply missing the mark. Missing the mark. It's actually an old archery term where you would pull your arrow, take your shot. If you miss the target, you would say sin, miss the mark. So when we say sin, you can think missing the mark with God. And so when we read this text in Romans 5, it says all sinned, That means that everyone that ever lived sinned. We all partook in the fullness and disobedience of God in that same moment that Adam first sinned. And we need to grasp that because that's foundational to understanding who we are. It's actually foundational to being able to glory in the amazement of the cross. It's part of who we are. Ephesians chapter two even says that it's part of our human nature that we're sinners. We are born with a desire to sin and disobey and I don't know how anyone with kids can disagree with that. Like my kid's two months old, he's already disobeying me. I was like, hey, I'm preaching tomorrow morning, waking up early, just try not to scream at 4 a.m. 4 a.m., he's yelling. We're born with the desire to disobey and sin. Now, if you're joining us this morning or or you're listening to this some other time, um, maybe you don't believe that sin is a real thing, but rather it's a creation of Christians in order to control and judge. And, And yes, churchgoers have done a really terrible, unloving job of this historically. But, but wherever you stand on the word sin, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on. Whether you've been a Christian your whole life, or you're not a believer, or you're an all-out atheist and you're joining us for the first time, first of all, I want to say that you're so welcome here and there's no judgment on you. There's no pressure to believe a word of what I'm saying this morning. I would simply challenge you to have an open mind, to doubt your doubts, and challenge your doubts about Christianity. And so wherever you are in life, I think we can all agree on this, that something's gone terribly wrong in the world. And that's not hard to see, whether you want to call it sin or not. Like, you don't have to look far. Turn on on the news. Look around you. What do you see? Um, War. 
murder, racism, uh, adultery, disease. It's clear that something's gone terribly wrong in the world and the biblical understanding as to why is sin. And the Bible speaks of sin in three, three primary ways. The first way is this word iniquity, iniquity. And, and that's really like a bent towards something. David sings about iniquities a lot. Iniquity is often a premeditated choice. It's lying awake at night thinking about how I'm going to rebel against God. Like many people have a bent towards lust. It begins with a thought or a glance and then it leads to how can I pull off this action? The perfect example of this is King David and Bathsheba. So King David, if you don't know, was one of the most powerful kings in the history of Israel. He's at home in his palace when he should have been off at war. He's standing in his palace looking out the window and he sees a woman across bathing on her patio. He sees her and he keeps looking, keeps looking. He asks his servants, hey, who, who is that? Oh, that's, that's Bathsheba. She's the, she's the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers who's fighting your war. He's thinking about it. He says, bring her to me. He plans it out. He sleeps with her. He covers his tracks by having Uriah killed. Like, this is iniquity playing itself out. It starts with a thought, and then you begin to plan on how you can act on it. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've done something. Maybe something came to mind right away, and here's why I'm so glad you're here. Here's why I know it's the providence of God, because God forgives this. To this, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. You have not gone too far. He knew how messy it was going to get before he went to the cross. That's precisely why he went. The second way the Bible talks about sin is this word transgression. Transgression. And this would be more so to willfully disobey. It's not so much premeditated, it's more so in the moment thinking, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I know what's best for me. It's an opportunity that's appeared before you that you know is sinful and you just decide, I don't care, I'm doing this. It's giving yourself over to your fleshly desires. You know to do this thing is sinful, to say this thing is sinful, and you do it anyways. And to this, Jesus says, Father, Forgive them. It's not too late. And, and then, of course, the Bible speaks of sin by saying the word sin, which we said is missing the mark to do something wrong against God or another person that you know will have negative effects. And, and we sin by commission. We do things we know we shouldn't. We sin by omission. We don't do things we know we should. And look, to that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. There is no sin in your life that God cannot and does not desire to forgive. But know this, 
while he is slow to anger and gracious and patient. Sin is a big deal. Sin is fracturing your relationship with God. Like, if you sin against your spouse, whether it's a lie or it's abuse or unfaithfulness, that's going to fracture your relationship, isn't it? It's going to be hard to experience the fullness of it. And if you're the one sinned against, like you're going to feel some things towards your spouse, aren't you? And so while God is, yes, slow to anger and abounding in love, the Bible is very clear that God definitely feels certain things about sin. Here's a few. Deuteronomy 9 says the Lord is angered by it. Genesis 6 says he feels grief over it. Isaiah 59, you see his heart here. It says he hates sin because it separates us from him. Romans 2 says he's storing up wrath because of sin. Exodus 32 says God will justly punish sin. It's fracturing your relationship with him. And and so why? Like, why is it so personal to God? Well, here's the thing about the Christian faith. We believe in a triune God, okay? So one God, three persons, ah, it hurts the brain. It's hard to comprehend that. There's God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, all equally God yet distinct. And C.S. Lewis calls the relationship between the Trinity the dance, the dance. It's a beautiful thing. He paints this picture of the Father glorifying the Son and glorifying the Spirit. Well, the Son glorifies the Father and glorifies the Spirit, and the Spirit glorifies the Father and glorifies the Son. It's this perfect, holy exchange of love playing out in community that then overflows into all of creation. It overflows onto you and I. This is how the world was created. It was created out of an over flow of love from the Trinity, which is why we as Christians say that the essence of all creation is love. And that love then pours onto man and woman, onto us, created in his image, so we too can be invited into this intimate and personal relationship. We get invited into the dance with the God of the universe so that if our relationship was designed to be intimate and personal, then our rejection or rebellion of that relationship is absolutely intimate and personal you can see how that would be painful to him. And so, that begs the question, what do we do then? How, how do we fix this? Like, I'm, I'm a guy, just tell me how to fix this. I'll do, I'll do anything. Well, we, we can't do anything. Which leads us to our third point, how he forgives. We can't do anything, but God can. But it's not that simple, because God can't just forget about or erase all of our sin, because then he wouldn't be a just God. 
And so what do we need? We need a savior. A penalty has to be paid. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Old, Te- the Old Testament sacrificial system. I know that's what you think about every Sunday afternoon. The Old Testament sacrificial system is gross. And I won't get too graphic, but they would sacrifice goats and, and lambs. And do you think that that animal just like gladly jumped on the table? Like, here we go. I bet that thing made some horrific noises. I bet it smelt terrible. It was a disgusting scene. That's God saying, this is what your sin looks like. And they would have to do this again and again because they never found a permanent, suitable sacrifice until God intervened out of love and sends Jesus who says, save the sheep, I'll go. And so Jesus goes, and he's hanging on the cross. And as he's hanging there, he's thinking about just a few hours earlier, his friend Judas betraying him with a kiss. He's thinking about Pontius Pilate who sentenced him to death for doing nothing wrong. He's thinking about the crowds of people who a few days ago were celebrating him but have now turned their backs on him for him to be killed. He's thinking about every soldier who's whipping him and hitting him and spitting on him, who are driving nails into his hands and his feet and mocking him as he drowns in his own blood. He's thinking about all of them. And Jesus, at any moment, could have stopped this. He could have called on a legion of angels to come and stop everything, but he doesn't. Instead, with all of them in mind, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You cannot outrun his grace. You see his desire for the very people who hung him there to offer them forgiveness for all iniquities, all transgressions, all sins. This is the offer he put on the table for them and it's the offer that's on the table for you now and I would plead with you to take it. Whatever you're coming in here with, Jesus forgives the very people who killed him. Surely he can forgive us. You have not gone too far. It's been paid for. Take the offer. Accept his forgiveness. Let me close with this idea. Here's what happens this Easter season. God out of an overflow of love. The same love in which he created all things, he looks upon us with great patience and love and he sees us as we are, which is broken and helpless and weak and sinful and he sends his son Jesus to offer us a way 
And in our place, Jesus goes to the cross, and as he's hanging there, he's praying for us, he's interceding for us. He's not thinking about his own pain that he's in, he's thinking about us, he's praying on our behalf, Father, forgive them. Likewise, today, right now, this very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, knowing what each of us are coming in here with, whatever shame, whatever sin we're hanging on to, and Jesus is saying to the Father, Father, forgive them. That's his incredible patience and love on display. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them. That's the offer on the table. And the question is, will you accept it? Let's pray. And so Jesus, oh, we we love you so much. I can't even fathom just how much you love us, that you would endure all of that for us, so that we might be set free from all of our shortcoming, all our sin, all our iniquities, all our transgressions. We might be free from that and get to spend an eternity with you. I thank you that it's, it's all done by no work of our own because if it was up to me, surely I would fail again and again. And so right now, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in here that you would help us just do the beautiful yet difficult work of self-examination Just give us the boldness to confess, whether it be to a loved one, to you, and just accept your forgiveness. Maybe there's something we've been hanging on to for years. May we just know that you paid for that. And so I just pray for a beautiful time of response where we can just celebrate what you've done for us on the cross, where we can just give our lives over to you again, And we can know with assurance that we are forgiven because of what you've done for us. We love you. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.